0: Hello, and welcome to The Search with Clint and Shahe. Having surveyed and discussed the life of Abraham, this episode will conclude our study of Genesis. The second half of the book traces how the promises and blessings of God moved from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob's twelve sons became the fountainheads of the twelve tribes of Israel, who, because of Joseph, relocate to Egypt. However, none of this took God by surprise for he was behind every move I will wait for you surely wait for you for your love is my We've been working our way through the uh, monumental uh, narratives that are presented throughout the book of Genesis in building this case that the main purpose of the book is to lay the foundation for the Exodus for God uh, sending Moses to call the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, to bring them to Mount Sinai, and to make them his special treasure and possession on the earth. In our last study, we spent a lengthy period of time discussing, in particular, the life of Abraham. Abraham's life is recorded for us in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. It starts with a little genealogical record at the end of Genesis 11 that sets up Abraham's family tree and a few little facts about Abraham and his wife Sarai and his familial situation. And then the life of Abraham begins for us in earnest when, at the age of 75, God calls him out of Ur to a land that he will show him and makes him three promises— to give him a land, to give him a nation, and that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God worked through Abraham, even when Abraham struggled to fully trust God through difficult times of his life, until the very end in Genesis uh, 25, when we see Abraham dies. And now the mantle is going to be passed to Abraham's son, the son that God had promised to give him, who is named Isaac. So we're going to proceed in this episode very similarly to how we proceeded with last week's discussion, where I will sort of uh, guide us through some of the key points of the narrative and then turn things over to Clint, who will really try to hone in on a uh, a few special themes and features of each section of the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph— We're obviously covering a pretty large section of scripture here, Genesis 26 to the end of the book, chapter 50, but we'll just try to make some key points along the way. So let's first talk about Isaac. Now, Isaac is the son that God had promised to give to Abraham and Sarah. He's born when Abraham is about 100 years old, and after Sarah died, one of the last things that Abraham did before his own death was to secure a bride for Isaac. He didn't want Isaac to marry any of the Canaanite women like uh, his brother Ishmael had done. And so Isaac sent his servant up to the north country, to Syria, where he had relatives, to find a bride for Isaac. And eventually, the servant went uh, by the commission of Abraham and found Rebekah. This is all narrated in Genesis 24. It's a really amazing time when the uh, servant has this test, and he prays to God that God will guide his efforts, and he meets Rebecca, who shows great uh, work ethic and hospitality, and there's this whole scene where the servant discusses the situation with Rebecca, reveals who he is and why he's come, they go and meet with her family, and she agrees to return with the servant to marry Isaac. This is all narrated, like I said, in Genesis 24. Now, Isaac and Rebekah get married. Abraham dies in Genesis 25, and the first thing that we learn then about Isaac and Rebekah as a married couple, which is also recorded in Genesis 25, is that they have babies. In fact, the Bible says they give birth to twins, and we know these twins are Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, and then Jacob comes right after him. There's a prophecy that's given about these twins right here in Genesis 25, which we will talk more about in just a moment. And then a period of time passes that's not defined for us in Genesis 25. And at the end of the chapter, we have this unusual scene where now Jacob and Esau are grown up some. I don't know that we really know how old they are when this event occurs. And uh, we learn here that Esau is a skilled hunter. He's a real outdoorsman. It says of Jacob in Genesis 25-27 that he was a quiet man and preferred the tent life. Uh, And so Esau is out hunting one day and Jacob is at the tent and he's cooking himself a nice stew And Esau returns home. He's very hungry and so famished, in fact, that Jacob sees this as an opportunity to get something out of Esau. Uh, So they make this arrangement. Esau says, I'll give you some of this stew if you agree to sell your birthright to me. And Esau agrees and then eats the stew, and then the narrative progresses from there. So a lot of information that's given to us about these uh, individuals, about this family, right here at the start in Genesis 24 and Genesis 25. Clint, what do we uh, learn about all this? For example, this prophecy that's made here about the twins and about what God's plans for them are, maybe help to work through this with us and uh, point out what it is that we really need to know about these texts.
1: Well, sure. Could you pull the prophecy up uh, for us to look at it on the screen? Then we can read it together and talk about some of the... uh the questions that arise, and the different ways that it's used by other Bible writers throughout the scripture. So uh, the Bible says there, beginning in verse 21, that the Lord granted the prayer of Isaac when he prayed for his wife because she was barren, and she conceived. And the children struggled together within her. Of course, they are they're, uh, fetuses in her womb, or little, little ones who are developing in her womb, and uh, they are fighting somehow inside of her. And she says, why is this happening to me? Uh, why would—is something wrong with them? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, later, there are going to be other biblical writers like the prophet Malachi and the prophet Obadiah, and then later even the apostle Paul, who hearken back to this prophecy. And sometimes in discussions about it, people mistake that what we have here is God showing some kind of preference to one individual over another, uh, saying that he loves one and hates the other. That language comes right out of the prophet Malachi, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And there have been quite a few uh, theological speculations and ideas that have arisen from that. But the key is really in the words of the original prophecy, two nations are in your womb and two peoples shall be separated from you. Jacob and Esau, their names are later changed to Israel and Edom, and we'll talk about that. And in those latter forms, their names become the names of their descendants on the national scale. And we're going to discover that really, what is being said in this prophecy did not apply to the individuals themselves. In fact, what is said never happened in the lives of the individuals. Uh, Jacob never, or Esau never served Jacob, but Esau's descendants, the Edomites, did serve the Israelites. They were subjugated by them. So we we learn a very important principle here that in prophecies like this, and we're going to find several others throughout the book of Genesis, the patriarchs, the progenitors of uh, a lineage are representatives of their offspring nations. And these narratives are given not just because they are interesting, interesting stories that maybe have a good moral, but because they give an historical foundation to God's later work with the whole world On a larger scale, when God begins to work with this nation or that nation, and uh, certain nations take a course away from God, and God deals with them, either he works to discipline them or he works to destroy them, and many times he will explain his actions by pointing back to promises and prophecies that he made to their fathers the patriarchs. And so that's really the role and function of prophecies like this.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense because this is something we've already seen in Genesis. We saw that in the table of nations and the cursing of Canaan, which would then develop into what we later see in God's dealings with the Canaanites. We see the descendants of Lot from his incestuous relationship with his daughters being the Moabites and the Ammonites, Two clans, two tribes that would be sort of thorns in the side of uh, the Israelites generations later. So that's very helpful to see here that it's not just that God is dealing with these two individual people. He's forecasting things that are going to be developing over a period of time as these men and their descendants turn into the nations that we learn about in future biblical texts. Very, very helpful. So we have, like I said, um, the scene here at the end of Genesis 25 where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment because we're going to tie it into something that happens a little bit later. But I do want to ask you one other piece of information we have in Genesis 25 is the account of Ishmael's death. And so in Genesis 25, starting in verse 12, this is right after Abraham dies there is um, an account of his genealogy, and here in verse 18, it says of of his descendants, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now this is the last thing we read about Ishmael, but Ishmaelites are gonna pop up even later in the book of Genesis when we get to talking about Joseph. And we see Ishmaelites uh, pop up a few times throughout the history of the Old Testament. So what happens to Ishmael, and is there anything important that we need to know about him and the people that come from him?
1: Yes, I think so. Uh, The Ishmaelites, we're going to encounter some difficult texts where Midianites and Ishmaelites are used interchangeably. And maybe, if I recall correctly, maybe even Moabites are sometimes called Ishmaelites and vice versa. And that's difficult. There's some uh, scholarly debate over what's going on there. But in every case, you've got descendants of Abraham who don't belong to the line of Israel. I mean, even the Moabites have kinship to Abraham because of their descendancy from Lot, And in all of these cases, you have uh, nations that originated with Abraham, and therefore in their early history, they knew the one true God. And Ishmael, his mother, is Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarah, who was brought out of Egypt. And she you don't get the sense that she was a godly woman from the very beginning, but there are some encounters she has with God where she Demonstrates great faith in him, and God demonstrates great love for her, and she gives God a special name. As she worships him, she calls him the God who sees me. And her son Ishmael is not a little baby at that point, he's old enough to have a sense of what's going on. And so I think that in Ishmael, we get the first of several examples that we're going to see throughout the Torah and throughout the history of Israel of nations that were born out of men who knew the one true God, and at least at one point were worshipers of Yahweh. But unlike Israel, they developed without the oracles of God being given to them. Now, the oracles of God is an expression uh, that refers to prophetic utterances, the things that ultimately, in at least some cases, would become the Scripture. And in Romans chapter three and verse two, the Bible says that Israel had advantage in all the world, much in every way, because to them was committed the oracles of God. Mm. So nations like the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, and the Moabites, we're going to see examples uh, in their flow of uh, historical development that some of them worshiped God. They knew God and There's going to be priests and prophets and other people who know who God is, and we can trace that back to their history, I think, but they also have some really severe problems, even bigger than the the problems that Israel has, and the reason for that is that in the unfolding of God's plan, he did not commit his oracles to these nations the way that he did to the nation of Israel. So that's one thing that I think is worthy of note about the Ishmaelites.
0: Very good. Yeah, that's very helpful. And on the first thing you discussed about how sometimes the tribal names seem to be used interchangeably, of course, that we know there were intermarriages in some of these tribal groups. One thing we'll learn about Esau is that one of his wives is an Ishmaelite, Ishmaelitis. Uh, a daughter of Ishmael or a descendant of Ishmael. So there was some intermarriage in these tribes, too. We shouldn't think of them as con- entirely insular from one another. This will be true even in uh, later Israelite history. We, we know about Ruth the Moabitess, who becomes integrated into the Israelite family and is the great-grandmother of uh, King David. So this is a common thing, and maybe that's one explanation as to why sometimes the tribal names are used interchangeably, because both are accurate just as, you know, my father's lineage goes one direction and my mother's goes in another direction. All right, so we'll come back to the the birthright issue that's presented to us at the end of Genesis 25. When we get to Genesis 26, now we're back focused on Isaac, okay? So we have a little bit of information about Jacob and Esau, but now the focus is back on Isaac in Genesis 26. And uh, we learned something interesting here about Isaac— that echoes an earlier scene that we discussed from Genesis 12 in Isaac's own father in Abraham. So Genesis 26 opens by saying, Now there was a famine in the land. That should ring some alarm bells for us. We've seen this already. Besides, and if we didn't get it just in that statement, uh, Moses spells it out for us. The former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, we remember when Abraham uh, had been first arrived in the land of Canaan and he would built some altars and things were going well, that a famine arose in Canaan. And that's when Abraham famously sojourned down to Egypt to find bread. And lots of bad things ended up coming into Abraham's life as a result of that sojourn. So here, instead of that happening, God intervenes to prevent Isaac from leaving the land. Verse 2 says, The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay here in the land that I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And then there's further elaboration on the covenantal blessing. Now, this is a key text because this is the first time we have God coming down to reaffirm the covenant promise that now has passed from Abraham to Isaac. And God's saying, don't leave the land, stay here. Don't abandon uh, the boundaries that I have established for you and for your descendants to be your own possession. I'm gonna bless you and I'm going to take care of you. Now, in spite of the fact that God comes and makes this promise to Isaac, he does heed, at least part of it, he doesn't go to Egypt, but instead he has an interaction with Abimelech that is also very similar to something his father Abraham encountered. So Abraham, when he went down to Egypt, he famously lied about his marital status Uh, To Sarah. He did it again to Abimelech, and I think we should read Abimelech sort of like we read the word Pharaoh. It seems like it's a title for the king of the Philistines. So there was an Abimelech that Abraham encountered and a later Abimelech that Isaac encountered. And in every one of these scenarios, the patriarch is nervous about how this ruler will respond to his presence in their territory and so they all in all three instances they lie about the marital status that they have with their wives for fear of something that may happen. And you think, well why does this keep coming up again and again? Something Clint mentioned in our study of the life of Abraham is that these scenes in Abraham's life demonstrate for us that there was a time where his faith needed to mature and grow and ultimately that his trust in God needed to develop. So at earlier points in his life, Abraham struggles to fully trust that God will provide for him and goes through these elaborate situations to try to uh, do things on his own that God says, I will do for you. Well, Isaac now has to go through that same growth process He needs to develop. He needs to learn to fully trust in the Lord, his God. And so this whole scene develops. He lies to Abimelech. He gets found out, just like Abraham gets found out, and all kinds of things happen as a result of that. Now we get to Genesis chapter 27. And in Genesis 27, Clint, we have a very unusual scene. Oh, go ahead. Do you have a comment here? Just one quick
1: comment before we go forward, that back at the very beginning of our study, when we talked about the authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, and we affirmed the traditional authorship that, that Moses was the originator of the whole thing, here's an example of where this becomes important. The, the unbelieving scholars, and not everybody, of course, who studies the Bible believes in God or respects the Bible, and the unbelieving scholars will depict the book of Genesis like this, this patchwork quilt a hodgepodge of little excerpts from different documents that were poorly sewn together. They'll be very critical about how the book of Genesis is put together. And sometimes what they'll say is what you've got here is is a really embarrassing repetition of a myth where the first time the characters are Abraham and Sarah and the second time it's Isaac and Rebekah. And yet, what we see here is an emphatic statement by the author. This is not the same story. This is a different famine than the one that happened in the days of Abraham. Of course, the story is not identical anyway, it it unfolds differently. Correct. But just, it's good as Bible readers and Bible teachers to take note of these little features that affirm the historical accuracy and the the genius of the people who are uh, the person who's put this book of the bible together for us this is a carefully researched and carefully detailed account with very particular focus
0: very good yeah that's very helpful all right so now let's move to genesis 27 and we have in genesis 27 maybe one of the most famous scenes from the life of isaac and in many respects, one of the most perplexing. (laughs) So this is the scene when Isaac is um, reported to be old and his eyesight is beginning to fail him. And he summons Esau to his side and says that he doesn't know when he's going to die. And before he passes, he would really like to enjoy some of Esau's cooking. And uh, and so I mean maybe he was just a master chef. So uh, Rebecca is in the other room and she is listening to what uh, the interaction that uh, Isaac is having with Esau. So Esau goes out to do the necessary hunting to find the game, the animal to kill, and then to prepare for his father. And it's at this moment that Rebecca and Jacob spring into action. And they concoct this elaborate plan to try to trick Isaac into giving the blessing, and we'll talk about what that is, into giving the blessing that they believed uh, their father Isaac was going to give to Esau and instead to give it to Jacob. So he, you know, covers his body with goat hair to seem more hairy and to be more like his brother. And they go in and there's all kinds of lying going on and deception at every turn. And Rebecca's there helping to instigate all of this until finally it's successful. They trick Isaac and he pronounces a blessing upon Jacob. And then it's at that time that Esau comes in Isaac realizes what has happened. Esau is desperate. He says, don't you have any kind of blessing for me? The writer of Hebrews will talk about this scene when he says that Esau sought repentance with tears, but he couldn't find it. Maybe we can talk about what that passage probably means. And then uh, Isaac says, well, I've already given the blessing to your brother. There's nothing I can do about all that, but I can give you this blessing. And he gives him some kind of blessing. Now, what in the world is going on here? There's so many questions, Clint, about this, like, uh, is this, why was Rebecca doing this? She already had that promise, prophecy given to her when they were born that Jacob would be in some way superior to Esau. Why are they doing this? Didn't Jacob already get the birthright from Esau in the stew incident back in Genesis 25? So help us to navigate what might be going on here.
1: So, as you said, there's a lot of moving parts, and I think we can start by making a distinction or by demonstrating a distinction between the birthright, which was taken with the stew incident, and the blessing, which is taken here. And this distinction is very clearly established, even though some Bible scholars and commentators and teachers miss it and fail to distinguish between these two things. In Genesis 27, verse 36, uh, I'll read from the New American Standard version here. Esau, when he realizes what has happened, protests and says, Is my brother not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. Remember the word Jacob means trickster. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So Esau establishes very clearly there is a distinction between the birthright and the blessing. And the birthright was a custom among the ancients that if you were a firstborn son, you would receive a double portion of the inheritance that otherwise would be divided up among the sons in the family. And so that's what Jacob wangled away from his brother (laughs) with the the bowl of soup incident. Now the blessing is something that maybe there was something like blessings that fathers generally gave to their children, whatever it meant uh, from, from most fathers, I don't know. But from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to his children, it meant something very special. It was passing on the blessing that God had given to Abraham, the covenantal promise that God was going to be performing a work that would ultimately be a blessing to all the nations. In other words, the blessing was what made one an heir of God's intentions. And even though uh, most of these intentions were spiritual, there was some physical abundance that was attached to it. We saw there was a promise of land. There was a promise of being favored by the nations in one respect or another through the providence of God. There was a promise of many children. So this blessing would have been desirable even to a man who was profane, like the Bible tells us that Esau was. Esau was not a particularly spiritual man, kind of a worldly man or earthy man. Nonetheless, there were things that he saw in this blessing, Esau, he saw, he saw <laughs> that he wanted. And so that, that explains, I think, the distinctions here. Now, there's also the challenge as to whether or not uh, this transaction occurred due to human wisdom and human ingenuity through lies and deceptions and plotting and conspiracy, or whether it was God's gift. God had told the mother through the angel that this is how it was going to be. And I think it's very possible that she had told her husband that. She told her husband what uh, the angel had told her. But as the boys grew older, he didn't like it because he liked Esau more than Jacob. Right. And this kind of uh, parental favoritism is going to be a major theme. Very problematic. All the, yeah. <laughs> all, all of the narratives. But uh, he liked Esau more. And so, he wanted Esau to be the one, not Jacob. Maybe he thought, surely, the angel didn't mean that. Mm. Uh, surely, you know, she was, she was having tr- stomach trouble, you know, at the time. Maybe right. she, she just imagined this. So, Jacob was not going. Uh, excuse me, not Jacob. Isaac. It's very easy to get our names mixed up oh, in yes. discussions like this. Isaac was was not going to be cooperative with God's intention. And Rebecca seems to want to get God's work accomplished for whatever reason. Maybe it was just because she liked Jacob more. Maybe Mm. she had carnal motivations. Maybe she had spiritual. But they accomplished it through uh, very unflattering and unrighteous methods. Now, if we ask the question then, did this occur through deception? Did it occur through prophecy? I think the answer is both. Sometimes God makes prophetic declarations of how things are going to unfold. And uh, in the end, there's a lot of, of things that happen along the way to bring about their unfolding that are really problematic. But God is so powerful, he has the ability to work through those problematic situations and bring his purposes to pass regardless.
0: Very good. Yeah, I think just to remind everyone, I, I think we, we mentioned last week that um, uh, one of the ways to understand the word blessing itself as going back to the events of creation when God blessed animals or when God blessed humans and told them be fruitful and multiply, that a blessing is an enabling and an equipping to do the work that God has assigned for a person or a group of people to do. And so this Patriarchal blessing, this family blessing seems to signify a setting apart of, in this case, Jacob over Esau, that God will equip and God will enable Jacob to continue to perform the tasks that God has assigned for this family to perform, namely and ultimately to bring about blessings for the whole world or for all the families of the earth. Well, now we need to really hurry along because we still have quite a bit of ground to cover. So uh, after this scene unfolds, Esau, of course, becomes enraged. And this is now the famous flight of Jacob. Jacob decides to run away for fear that Esau is going to maybe kill him. And so he flees north to go up to where the kinfolk live, where Rebekah, his mother, is from. And this is the, there's a famous scene here in Genesis 28 where Jacob is in the wilderness and he uh, is going to sleep with a rock for a pillow, which is my children's favorite part of the story. Who uses a rock for a pillow? They always ask. And, um, and he has this vision uh, and he looks up and there's this ladder that's connecting his position on the earth and heaven itself. And he sees God at the top of the ladder and angels are ascending and descending and uh, the fourth gospel, the book of John, will connect this vision to the work of Jesus. And in an amazing way that, that Jesus is now fulfilling this prophecy, this promise that God gives to Jacob. Jacob makes a commitment to God after this vision is given to him. And even though Jacob's character has a lot of development and growth uh, still in front of him, Jacob will eventually return and, to, and uh, do his best to fulfill the oath that he makes to God. So Jacob flees north, and he goes to meet Laban and uh, the family that's up north. that's uh, Rebekah's kin and, of course, Abraham's kin as well. And we see a, a, a multi-chapter scene unfold now where Jacob is going to try to find himself a wife. And he goes and he meets a young woman named Rachel, and he's smitten by Rachel. And so he makes a bargain with Laban to work for a period of seven years. And at the end of that seven-year period, he wants to marry Rachel. And that's the arrangement they have. And so for seven years, he works for Laban. And on his wedding night, he goes into the tent And uh, Laban has, you know, done to Jacob what Jacob has made a reputation for himself doing. He's tricked him. And he swapped out his eldest daughter, Leah or Leah, depending on your preferred pronunciation. And that's who he marries. And so Jacob is unhappy with this. He still wants to marry Rachel in spite of the fact that now he's married to Leah. And so he works another seven years to marry Rachel and eventually uh, accomplishes that And uh, after all that, and there's all kinds of other drama that unfolds with uh, Laban where they're both trying basically to get the upper hand on one another, they're both trying to cheat the other, he leaves the north country, he leaves what is modern day Syria essentially, and returns back to the promised land. When he returns, of course, he's very apprehensive about how Esau will welcome him, but Esau has grown himself a little tribe during this time, and he's got wives, and he's got family, and so really they reunite on pretty amicable terms, uh, and they uh, uh, sort of make a pact with each other that they're not going to do each other any harm, and uh, we'll sort of pause there And just talk a little bit about, in particular, about Jacob's marital situation. So now he's married to two women. And the Bible also tells us that he has concubines, two concubines. So now four women... And as the narrative unfolds, the life of Jacob is being featured prominently, he's going to start to have children by these women. Famously, the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, are going to come from these four women. But it, it never really seems to be a very good situation. There's all kinds of very, very tense family drama, uh, and things are never really well settled at home in his home life. Help us through all this, Clint. What, what is it that we need to understand about Jacob's marital status that might help us to understand what's going on here?
1: Well, before we, we really get into the, the marriage situation with all of its complexities and drama that rivals any daytime or primetime <laughs> television series that's ever been produced, uh, I think it's important to note these people were messed up. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they all have some serious problems, and sometimes Bible readers are shocked to see such problems in the lives of the heroes of the faith. That kind of understanding, I think, reflects a, a misunderstanding of what the role of these people were. The, these are not legends of righteousness. They're mm. not mythological examples of what it means to be godly men and women. Uh, in fact, what we really see in many of their stories is the inadequacy of the old systems that God worked through to lead up to the coming of Jesus Christ. For instance, when Jacob deceived his father, uh, one of the challenges that his father made, he, he he didn't think that it was Esau originally, and he kind of argues with him, eh, you you feel like Esau, but you smell like Jacob and <laughs> other things like that. He said, uh, at one point, he said, well, how did you get this meat so quick? And Jacob says, the Lord your God brought it to me. He doesn't even say that he's a worshiper of God. He doesn't even acknowledge any relationship with God whatsoever. In fact, later, when he has the vision of the latter, and he makes that promise. He says, if God will bless me, then he will be my God. Then I'll accept the God of my Father, and I'll worship him too. So we have to realize these people are growing spiritually, and along the way, uh, they've got a lot of uh, problems. Even though they're in covenants with God, that doesn't mean that they have a, a good relationship with him or a spiritual mind. Right Now, these two women that uh, Jacob married, these two sisters particularly, without even getting into the, the concubines, there's a popular reading of this story that kind of makes it a love story between Jacob and Rachel. And so the, I think a lot of people will, will sort of mirror Jacob's relationship with Rachel with Isaac's relationship with Rebecca, mm. I think that on the whole, Rebecca is a godly woman, a good woman who trusts the Lord and she makes decisions that bring her closer to God. But I would suggest that there's an alternative way that we should read the account of Jacob's relationship with his wives, Rachel and Leah. Actually, Leah was the better of the two. Rachel was physically attractive. The Bible emphasizes that several times. Rachel had, or Leah had some problem. She was weak-eyed, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, but Rachel was, was the preferred woman by Jacob originally. But as the story unfolds, Leah is shown to be the better of the two. There's hints at this when they name their children. Leah names her children in ways that express gratitude to God and trust in God. On the other hand, Rachel always names her children names that demonstrate pettiness and selfishness and immaturity, and uh, she, she manifests a lack of trust in God. She turns to other options before she expresses faith in God. She tries to use some superstitious system with mandrakes to Uh, conceive a child. There are other failings of Rachel, like stealing her father's household idols. Mm. And there are other virtues of Leah, like praying and trusting in the Lord. Leah is God's choice. Leah is the one who God opens her womb and blesses her much more than Rachel. And ultimately, I think that Leah is Jacob's choice. And we see that when the two women die. And Rachel's just buried, but Leah is buried in that family grave at Machpelah with the rest of the uh, patriarchs, including Jacob himself later. So I want to give that for our listeners as a challenge to look at this story a little bit differently than maybe uh, the classic telling has encouraged.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I think another indication that you didn't mention, uh, but that to me is also quite significant is that... Half of the 12 sons, six out of the 12, are born of Leah.
1: Yeah, that shows that she's God's choice. That's That's right. right.
0: She is the matriarch of half of the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of the concubines, uh, they have two sons each. That'd be Gad and Asher, and then Dan and Naphtali. And Rachel has the last two, famously Joseph and Benjamin, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. But yes, uh, the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah, they both come from, uh, from Leah. And I think that's an indication here from the biblical text that she was the one that he really should have been with and that God was the one who was in favor of her all along. All right, so let's return to our narrative here. And we're in Genesis 32. Now, um, we've sort of put a few different pieces together that we've not gone perfectly chronologically. But in Genesis 32, uh, we have now have 11 of the 12 sons have already been born. The last to be born will be Benjamin. And we have this in- incredible scene at the end of Genesis 32, just before Jacob meets Esau. And he's, of course, uncertain about how that all is going to go. Where Jacob encounters a man with whom he wrestles. And uh, let's, let's just read a, a little bit about this. This is in Genesis 32, as I said. Let's start here uh, in verse 25. So it says, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... Uh, actually, I should start in verse 24. It says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket... And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you, here's the operative word again, bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So this is a famous scene in the life of Jacob where he gives is given his new name. And his new name is now meant to reflect his new status in life. And so Jacob, uh, I think the indication here, has learned the lessons of being a trickster, of being one who is full of deception. And uh, he comes in contact with this Uh, man who is also said to be uh, some sort of manifestation of God and they're wrestling for a time and Jacob persists, And he's given the new name, the name Israel. And so Israel will uh, be used interchangeably with Jacob for the rest of the biblical text. In fact, you'll see that on throughout, even into the books of the prophets. Sometimes they'll use Jacob, sometimes they'll use Israel. But that's important to remember that those names are being used interchangeably to refer to the descendants of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. So uh, now Jacob returns to the land. I've already mentioned he reunites with Esau, and everything goes pretty well there. In the land, however, not all things uh, are are going smoothly because there's this terrible scene that unfolds where Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob, is assaulted by a group of people called the Shechemites. And in response to this sexual assault, we learn that a couple of the sons of Jacob, particularly Simeon and Levi, who are the second and third born, they decide to enact revenge on the Shechemites. And so they tell the Shechemites, well, uh, our, our sister can marry into your tribe, but in order for that to happen, you have to be circumcised because that's a part of our identity. So if all the men in your tribe get circumcised, then Dinah will marry into your tribe. And so they do it. And the Bible says that while the men are recovering from their surgery, from their operation, Simeon and Levi lead a group of men into their camp and slaughter all of them. So that happens. Something else that happens involves the firstborn son of Jacob, Reuben, who sleeps with one of Jacob's concubines, And so we have, again, this emphasis that these people are all kinds of messed up and have all kinds of problems. And because of this, we're going to learn later at the end of the book of Genesis, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, who were the first, second, and third born, they're going to lose their own place of primacy in the structure of the future of God's plans. And Jacob the fourthborn will eventually be elevated, and Jacob's—I mean, joseph Judah. Excuse me. I'm getting all over the place. Judah, the fourthborn, will be elevated above his fellows. His tribe will be the most preeminent. His tribe will, of course, be the tribe that David, King David, comes from, and eventually the Lord Jesus. Okay, now— We've got to transition to the life of Joseph and spend the rest of our time talking about Joseph, because in the end section of the book of Genesis, Joseph takes center stage. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob and one of only two sons born to Rachel. Joseph has a series of dreams, and these dreams are all meant to uh, meant to portray his supremacy over his brothers. Well, his brothers get very jealous of all of this, and the dreams are coupled with the fact that Jacob, their father, clearly shows favoritism of Joseph over all of his older brothers, because he was the one who was born of Rachel. And so he gives them this his this fancy coat, the technicolor dream coat, as it's called, and uh, and uh, and he wears this coat and he sort of struts around, you know, you can just sort of uh, um, imagine him as a, maybe a pretty immature but self-important teenager who thinks he's hot stuff. And this enrages his brothers. And so they come up with this scheme originally to kill him. They decide not to do that because of the advice of Judah. Instead, they sell him into slavery. And Joseph is taken down to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt as a slave, he eventually comes into uh, work for a man named Potiphar. He becomes a, a well respected servant in Potiphar's household until Potiphar's wife tries to make a sexual advance on him. He flees from that. She, uh, of course, lies about what happens, he gets in prison. While he's in prison, he starts to interpret some dreams of his fellow prisoners. Eventually, he gets called into Pharaoh's throne room to interpret a disturbing dream that Pharaoh has. And this elevates Joseph to a place of incredible importance in Egypt. Now, that's a lot of narrative material to cover, Uh, that we just don't have time to dissect with too much detail. But, Clint, what do we need to know about the sale of Joseph into slavery and his eventual rise in the land of Egypt that's really key?
1: Well, I'm going to focus on on one thing because there's so much we could say. The the Joseph narrative has a, a historical function because it's going to demonstrate how and why the family of Israel winds up in Egypt. They weren't supposed to go to Egypt. Egypt was not a good place to go. When Abraham went, bad things happened. Isaac avoided going. Why did they all wind up there, all wind up living there and eventually being slaves there? Well, the Joseph narrative is going to lead us to the answer to that question. But there's another role that the Joseph narrative plays. Many times I've heard sermons where people will emphasize Joseph as a type of Jesus, and they'll mm. they'll point out uh, c- parallels and similarities between Joseph and Jesus. And sometimes they get really creative, and they say well, both of them had, ex- had an expensive coat and <laughs> all kinds of things like that. Uh, I want to suggest instead reading Joseph as a model Israelite. Mm. Now, it may be of course, there's a, a tremendous parallel between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the model Israelite, but Joseph was in many respects a model Israelite. There are things about him that are much better out of the norm from what we've been reading in the lives of these patriarchs so far. There was a time later when Jesus met a man named Nathaniel, who I think becomes an apostle, and when he meets him, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. F.F. Mm. Bruce, because the word Jacob means trickster, F.F. F. Bruce actually translates this, Behold, one who is all Israel and no Jacob.
0: Oh, okay. I always thought that was kind of
1: interesting. Yeah. We have a transition in Jacob where he moves from being a trickster right. to being a truster, a, a truster in God and Joseph is all Israel and no Jacob. Mm. When you look at him in the land of Egypt, he is blessed by God. He's given tremendous power to interpret dreams, but he uses his power to be a blessing to the nations. He blesses Egypt and other nations while he is serving there in the land. But in the midst of all of this blessing, he remains loyal to Yahweh as he dwells among the pagans. And that's profoundly seen in his encounter with Potiphar's wife when he says, I will not do this great wickedness and sin against God. So he is blessed, he becomes a blessing, but he continues to be loyal to God in the midst of the nations. And in doing so, he becomes a model of what it means to be an Israelite mm. in God's purpose. That's really what I want to focus on right now. There's certainly more that could be said, but I think that the historical function of the narrative and that uh, theological function, those are the two that are outstanding to me.
0: Very helpful, very helpful. All Israel, no Jacob. I like that. I like that. That'll preach, as we sometimes say. Well, anyway, so let's try to close up here our our survey so of course the the dream that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream has to do with a coming devastating famine. He says the famine will be preceded by 7 years of bounty and plenty and the, then the famine will last an equally long amount of time, 7 years. And so uh, the, obviously the, the need then would be to prepare during the seven-year boon for the time of scarcity that's going to follow. So Pharaoh assigns Joseph this monumental task and makes him vice-regent of all the land of Egypt and entrusts him to save many lives. This is what the Genesis account says, that God put him there to save many lives We see the providence of God moving during every step of the entire life of Joseph, uh, keeping him safe during that time when he was taken to Egypt and allowing him to find his way all the way to the right hand of Pharaoh so that he could save many lives. Joseph will even himself eventually say, what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. So Joseph is given this task, and he does all the work to prepare for the coming famine. And then the famine arrives, and of course, his family, his brothers, and his aged father are caught up in the famine. They're still up in Canaan, uh, but the famine has extended beyond the boundaries of Egypt, beyond the borders of Egypt, all the way up into that land as well. And so the narrative tells us that some of the sons of Jacob sojourn down to Egypt to buy grain because they've heard reports that there's grain in Egypt, And there's this whole process where they don't recognize Joseph at first. He sells them some grain. He decides he's going to try to test them to see if they've changed. It's been years since they've seen each other. Joseph's grown up. They've grown up. And so he has all of these different tests in order to find out if their uh, character has improved and what he might find if he reveals himself to them. Well, he's satisfied with the tests. And so the Bible says he eventually reveals himself to them. And it's a very touching scene. They're afraid, of course, because they now are depending on him. Where he was once at their mercy, they are now at his mercy. And so a natural human instinct might be to take advantage of this opportunity for revenge. But the model Israelite, as Clint has told us, does not do that. Instead, he graciously forgives his brothers for what they have done He's eventually reunited with his father when the whole family comes down to Egypt to survive uh, this famine, and Joseph provides for them. They get set up in the north part of the land of Egypt, and uh, they're given a land there by Pharaoh in honor of the fact that Joseph has done this work to keep everyone alive. Eventually, Jacob dies. Uh, we might just note as, as a side a point here, that uh, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and in honor of what Joseph has done in saving the family and saving the whole region, those two sons, who are Jacob's grandsons, get elevated by Jacob to son status, So that when the 12 tribes finally get set up in the land during the days of Joshua, Ephraim and Manasseh are counted as their own full tribes, right alongside Dan and Reuben and Gad and Naphtali and so on and so forth. Uh, Finally, Jacob dies and Joseph throws the biggest funeral you've ever heard of in your life for his father, and he is taken this massive mourning caravan all the way back up to Machpelah. Jacob is buried there with Rachel and Isaac and Rebekah and Abraham and Sarah, and they're all put into the cave, into the family tomb. In Genesis 49, before that happens, we might just note Jacob makes some uh, patriarchal pronouncements about his sons, about the tribes. But then we come to the end of the book, and I want to read the the very last few verses of the end of the book of Genesis, where the death of Joseph is narrated, and Joseph's incredible faith in the promises of God are highlighted for us at the end of Genesis. So we read here, beginning in verse 22 of Genesis 50, "'So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years,' And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, of course, uh, anyone who knows anything about ancient Egyptian culture knows that no one knows how to preserve bodies and await a future resurrection like the Egyptians. And with his status in Egypt, he would have been given his own pyramid and buried with uh, countless riches and wealth and entombed in that land. But that's not what Joseph wanted because he knew this is not where we're supposed to be. This is a temporary stopgap measure to preserve us, to allow us a time to grow into the nation God needs us to be. But eventually he'll remember all the promises he made to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. He'll rescue us from this land, and he'll bring us to that land that he's promised as our inheritance. So they put his bones in a box, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And later we read that they do exactly what Joseph asked them to do, and Joseph's bones are brought with them into the land after the time of the Exodus. So, Clint, as we come here to the close of our survey of Genesis— Uh, Do you have any kind of final remarks, any uh, real important note you want to sound at the end of this study as we then begin to make our journey into the book of Exodus?
1: It's so difficult to think, how how do we summarize this book, one of the most important books in the whole Bible, a tremendous amount of information here that is worthy of meticulous consideration. Uh, I, I, I would just say that, In the Joseph narrative especially, what most people see that's particularly outstanding is the providence of God, God ruling over this nation where most of the people there don't even believe in him, Mm. but he's working through history regardless by his amazing power, and he's bringing his purposes to pass. Really, that's all of Genesis. It might be particularly powerfully on display in the Joseph narrative, but the whole book of Genesis demonstrates that God is king of the universe because he is its creator, and even though back in the very early chapters the universe turned in rebellion against him through Satan and through sinful man, God is still in control, and he's working to bring his ultimate purposes to pass to redeem creation and turn it back to him. And every one of the narratives and stories we read in Genesis, however remarkable and entertaining and interesting they might be in their own right, needs to be read in that continuous stream of thought Mm -hmm. for us to really appreciate what's happening here.
0: Very good. And if there's just maybe one thing I can emphasize in cooperation with that, is that one thing we see in the book of Genesis is that when the people of God... Allow God to lead them and allow God to guide them, they can accomplish anything for His name's sake. Noah can save all life on planet earth by following the will of God and building that ark. Abraham can have a child at a hundred and Sarah at ninety because they finally trusted that God would fulfill the promise He had made to them 25 years earlier. Jacob who should have been murdered countless times by all the different people that he cheated, somehow survives and is given the right to become the patriarch of the people of Israel, to literally have his name changed to Israel and father what will eventually be the 12 tribes. And of course, Joseph maybe is the most quintessential example of all of this, that when God is present and working with his people, and when they allow him to do that, When the people of God allow him to take the lead, they can accomplish anything. And it's only when the people of God reject the Lord's way of doing things or reject his plan or don't fully trust his promises that chaos, division, strife, unrest, uncertainty, and failure— always follow. And so that, I think, reflects the idea that we discussed early on in Genesis. When God removes his spirit, when the people reject his presence by rejecting his plan, then everything goes to dust. But when God is cooperatively allowed to work with his people, they can do anything. And we're going to see that continue as we talk about the generations that will come many, many years after the lives of Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, their future descendants, and the work that Moses will do among them. The same thing will happen when the people of God allow the Lord to take the lead, man, they do great things. And so I hope that that's something we can learn in our own study, uh, especially of the lives of the patriarchs. Let the Lord lead, trust in his guidance, his counsel, his promises, and know that with the Lord all things are possible. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, for your love is my delight.